take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to the book of Ephesians, and uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to finish off where we started last, uh, last Sunday, and to finish uh, that message, and uh, so it's uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and uh, let's read it together, or I'll read it, and we'll pray, and then we will uh, work our way through this, um, through this passage of Scripture. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Father, thank you for our opportunity to, to worship you today. Thank you for the fact that we could worship you with our giving. And uh, it's just our way of honoring you and obeying you and of thanking you. Thank you that we can worship you with our talents and abilities as we um, were reminded of our desire to have a closer walk with you. Thank you that we can worship you in prayer and that we can worship you with song with our minds, um, with our bodies. And we come now to worship you around your word. And uh, this is one of these uh, opportunities, again, that we have to allow you to instruct us, to allow the living, eternal word of God to um, confront us with truths that are um, embattled in the world around us, to come before truths that you reveal which tell the truth about us when the world is full of lies about who we are. And uh, so as we come to this word, we again just ask, in almost an act of desperation, help us, Lord, to understand truth. Help us to um, pull aside all the falsehood and the deceit that um, constantly crowds out our hearts and our minds, and may we see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this word this morning. Make the book live, I pray. Uh, make it look, live in my life um, and in the lives of these people gathered here this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Buckley's cough syrup. You know what the saying is? It, it tastes good. It tastes awful, but it works. You have to admire a company like Buckley's who would advertise uh, the truth about its product, and uh, I think one could question whether or not there is a, there is a correlation between something tasting awful and, some, and being good for you or working for you, but at least I admire their truthfulness in their advertising. I appreciate their honesty, because this is not the, your typical artificial grape-tasting, sugar-saturated, doubles-as-a-pancake-syrup cough medicine. <laughs> this is Buckley's cough syrup. Tastes awful, but it works. We come to a, a passage like we have before us, and, and for me, I thought this is something like spiritual Buckley's. It, uh, this is not stuff that goes down easy. This is not um, scriptural truth that we spend a whole lot of time thinking about or meditating on, but here we come to the biblical doctrine of man, which doesn't taste great, but it is truth. And last week, we uh, just spent our time uh, talking about this one uh, point, which we are uh, simply dead men uh, who are uh, uh, the story of the living dead. 
And we concentrated on the first couple verses, or the first couple words of chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead. And we talked about the reality of, of our spiritual deadness, of our spiritual state outside of Christ. What I want to do is now go through the rest of these verses and help us understand then what the living dead look like. How does this spiritual death work itself out in the reality of our life? Because it's not like we are physically dead and motionless and unable to do ever, anything. But he says that we are those who are walking. Uh, and so there's, a, there's, a, there's an animation to our spiritual death. And it works itself out in at least three ways. Um, one, one individual said that um, it's like we are walking prisoners, for instance. That all our exercise takes place within the confines of a prisoner of war camp. And so we are, we are walking, but we are constrained by, by the boundaries of the, the camp that is uh, uh, the fences and uh, the restrictions that are set up around us. Uh, another way that I have been thinking about this is that possibly we are spiritual zombies. And uh, a zombie is one who is sort of controlled. They're sort of guided. They're, they're, they don't think on their own. They don't act on their own. Their actions are guided by something else. Another way I was thinking of that is um, if you're a Star Trek fan, uh, we're spiritual Borg. Um, you know, we're all sort of one mentality and, and kind of go the direction of the, the big think. And so this is uh, an illustration of, of how this spiritual deadness is working out. Paul explains this for us. And one translation which puts it very well, and uh, it helps us understand this, is the, the Revised Standard Version. And it puts this deadness in three ways. It says that we follow the course of this world, we follow the prince of the power of the air, and we follow the desires of our body and our mind. These are three different ways in which the spiritual deadness um, takes on reality in individuals. And it's manifested in these three particular ways. And as, I, as you think about these, these are really the, the three um, battlefronts of, of life. They are the three areas in which we struggle, uh, which, which exhibit our deadness, and then which we fight against as we become children of God. Uh, to sum them up in, in words, they are the world, they are the devil, and they are the flesh. Those, are, those three areas count for 100% of every single battle that you will face as, as a human being. And so the first thing that, uh, that Paul uh, describes as illustrations of our deadness is that we are captive to the world. He says that, that we follow the course of this world. We follow the ways of this world. A, little tra- a literal translation would be that we are, um, we are following the age of of this world, this, the, the way that this world thinks. And I was uh, uh, thinking about it this way, that we saw the horrific news just this past week of that, uh, ri- those two rivers at that campsite that within, uh, within an hour rose more than eight feet. And, and if you were caught in those rivers, they just took you along. It's the same way in which our spiritual deadness is revealed, that the world just sweeps us along with its course and its direction. And wherever the philosophy of the world goes, so goes we. It is just, it's an illustration of our captivity. Paul is talking about a mentality. He's talking about a way of thinking. In Galatians 1 chapter 4, he talks about uh, this present evil world. It's a hostile value system that dominates our thinking. Uh, it's, a, it's a way of um, looking at life uh, without God being in the picture. Uh, it's like, as though we are constantly attracted as if, as if by a magnet to find our deepest satisfaction 
in things that are transient, in things that are temporary, in things that are passing away. It's an outlook of, of society and life that, that disregards God, that has no reference point in God. It is society organized without God. It's a value system which is alien to God. It's a view of life without God. For example, we might think in, in the scientific area of the whole theory of evolution. I, I think one of the realities about evolutionary thought and evolutionary science is a, is a direct attempt to account for creation and life without God. It is a, its, its target is to explain the world and to explain life without any reference whatsoever to God. And so evolutionary thought is, is, is worldly thought. And there are numerous people around the world that have been taken captive by a scientific explanation uh, or theory, a scientific theory about how this world came into being that is contrary to Scripture and that is um, with no reference point at all to God. We might see this illustrated in another area. Uh, For instance, the area of leadership. And these are general statements, but in the area of leadership. In Matthew uh, chapter 20, Jesus is talking about leadership and he he tells his disciples that um, we ought not to exercise authority or be dominant over other peoples or lord it over uh, those under us as the Gentiles do. In other words, we aren't supposed to dominate. We aren't supposed to exert power. We aren't supposed to control with force and might and brute strength. He says, rather, we are to be servant leaders. We are to put the interest and the needs of others ahead of us. And so there's a completely different way of looking at leadership. Uh, We think of this in another area, in in the area of relationships. And and I was thinking of this specifically in the area of sexual ethics and uh, 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 sexuality. The the world has has, uh, taken... um, the, the deadness of our, our spiritual state is illustrated in the way that the world has taken people captive in their view of sexuality. I am astounded by the way that the course of this world completely disregards anything that the scripture has to say about sexuality, about sexual ethics, about sex within mes- marriage, about sex outside of marriage. And this was illustrated to me the other night, Saturday night, just last night I was driving to... Um, to the men's, uh, men's barbecue. And on the way there, they were, um, they were interviewing a lady who is a government-licensed sexologist. And you think, wow, we've come a long way, baby. Uh, how do you have a, a government-licensed sexologist? But they were interviewing this lady particularly to give her comment on that survey that some of you may have read in the newspaper in the last couple of weeks about a survey they did about the attitudes of Canadians to premarital sex. And the survey um, seems to indicate that there is really no now thought about um, the rightness or the wrongness of premarital sex. In, in other words, that everybody is doing it. And as they were interviewing this lady, I couldn't listen to her. I had to get out of my car and shut the door and, and leave. Because in phrase after phrase, in, in point after point, she attacked the biblical view of sexuality. And so it's this whole course of thinking that disregards the truth about sexuality and embraces something that is opposed to God. It is sex without reference to God. And so we see how the world, and those are just three examples of of the way that our spiritual deadness is, is illustrated. 
It's illustrated in the way that we think about how this world came into being. It's illustrated in the way that we lead. It's illustrated in the way that we, viewed, that, that we view sex and, and its place in our life and its place in the world. And Paul's statement is simply this, that those who are spiritually dead are controlled and are captive to the thinking of this world. In Mark uh, chapter 4, verse 18, as Jesus is giving the explanation to the parable of the sowers and the seed, he's talking about the third illustration, uh, how the, 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 the word of God goes out and it, it sort of finds some receptive ground, but it's not ground that will ultimately bear fruit because all of a sudden this, the word of God is overtaken by those who are consumed with the cares of this world and by the deceitfulness of riches. In other words, they are so captive to the philosophy and the thinking of the world as it relates to stuff that they have no openness towards God and how God says that we ought to think. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17 is a, is a passage of Scripture that we, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you are very familiar with uh, as uh, John describes sort of the power of the world. And he starts by simply saying this, Do not love the world. That's pretty straightforward. Do not love any philosophy, any thought, any ethic that disregards God or that is opposed to God or that is opposed to the clear teaching of Scripture. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you understand? He's drawing this contrast now. And he goes on, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in possessions is not from God, but it's from the world. The world is passing away along with all its desires, but whoever loves the will of God abides forever. The apostle is setting up a contrast there. He's saying that there are those that are captivated and sucked away by the world and there's those that are captivated and drawn into doing the will of God. And there are, there are in complete opposite directions. The lust of the, 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 the flesh, to me, um, can be sometimes uh, helped to be understood by uh, the five senses. By how do, how do the five senses draw us after things of the world? Food, um, pleasure, uh, um, aromas. Uh, these are things that suck us in to, to the world and take us captive to the world. The lust of the eyes, um, coveting, um, seeing something somebody else has and wanting it for yourself. Um, desiring to have a large bank account, the, the, desiring to have lots of fame and influence. Um, these are things that are, are sort of described under the lust of the eyes. We have the pride of life. Um, for me, as I understand the pride of life, it, it, it moves into the area of saying, I don't need God in my life. Um, I am the captain of my own soul. I am the one who determines the direction of my life. It's illustrated in James chapter 4 when you have those individuals that are planning uh, for the future. And uh, as they're thinking about the future, they say, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and we'll spend a year there and we'll trade and we'll make a profit. There, that is the pride of life. I control what will happen to me this year. I don't even control what's going to happen to me in the next hour. But the pride of life says, I live without God. I'm in control of my destiny. And so in all of this, um, Paul is saying that our spiritual deadness is revealed by the fact that we are controlled by our senses. We're controlled by our eyes. We're controlled by our pride. We're taken in to a whole way of viewing life without reference to God. 
We are warned time and time again of the dangers of the world. Paul tells us that the world and all that is in it is going to be condemned. We are told in James how friendship with the world is hostility towards God. We're told that we are to be not polluted and stained by the influence of the world. We're told in Romans chapter 1, uh, or 12, verse 1 and 2, how, how this world has this, has this constant pressure to squeeze us into its mold, into the way that it thinks, the way that it looks, the way that it talks. And so one of the ways in which our spiritual deadness is, is revealed is the fact that we are captive to this world. The second thing that Paul goes on to say is, is that um, uh, I, I've sort of termed it, we are prisoners of war. We are prisoners of a cosmic battle. And he, he puts it in, 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 in this way in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 where he says there that um, we are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is talking about Satan. This is talking about the devil. This is talking about the fact that there is a reality that, that there is more to this life than meets the eyes. This is telling us that there is a whole unseen world. There is this whole spirituality that constricts and control, controls and fights after the individual. And some might say here in this morning, you're not telling me, Paul, that you believe in Satan. You believe in a real devil. I do. I absolutely do. I believe in it, for one, because the Bible tells me that there is a devil. And I believe the Bible to be truth. Secondly, I believe in it because I, have, I, I am aware of spiritual warfare in my life. I am, a, I am aware of forces and I'm aware of battles and I'm aware of stuff that, that is just beyond natural stuff. This isn't, this isn't just the stuff of flesh and blood. There is a reality that, that constricts me or that comes upon me that is bigger than just what I can see and touch. And I also believe there is a devil because how do you explain the evil that is in our world today? How do you explain the horrific nature of what men and women do to one another? Of what is propagated in, in this world? I was just thinking, uh, I, I've been reading through Revelations in my, in my uh, devotions and uh, just been struck again by, by how it talks about the power of, of, of the devil and the things that, that he controls and that he does. But chapter 13, and you can read these for yourself, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, about the influence of, of, of Satan in the world, particularly chapter 12 even, which talks about the fact that Satan has lost the battle in heaven. He's been kicked down to earth and he's really ticked off. And he's waging war against the world because he knows his time is short. But in verse 5, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. How many, how many people do you hear around you in the world that their mouths are just full of pride and blasphemy? Where does that come from? Because they're following after the, the spirit of this world. And he goes on and he says, and, and this beast was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months and it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. Blaspheme in his name and his dwelling and, and, and that is those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given, uh, given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life and the lamb that was slain. Like, that's just one biblical reference to this power and authority that is at work around us in the world in which we live. 
And, and I think some of our trouble with, with Satan is that we have relegated him to the land of fantasy and fiction. He's, he's just become the stuff of stories and, and, and tales and, and there's no reality to him. There's no teeth to him. Or we've painted him red and we put horns on his head and we, we, we kind of laugh at him. And we say, oh, look at that thing. I'm not scared of that. Or that's just an ugly looking kind of creature. Or, or we, 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 we tame him. And we say, well, you know, he's just this, he's this force, but I can control him and I stick him over here. We do that to our ignorance. Notice what Paul says about him. He is a prince. He has got power. He has got authority. We just read that. He once had position among the hosts of all the, the heavens and he rebelled against God and he was cast out with a third of the angels who followed after him in rebellion. And now John tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, doesn't that make sense when you think about the fact that, 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 that people who are spiritually dead are captive to the world, and now we've got this prince who has authority over us, and the whole world lies in his authority and his power, that in, in um, John chapter 12, verse 31, uh, we're told that Satan is the ruler of this world. In Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we're told that he is the God of this age, so there is this very real power and authority that is influencing those, uh, influencing this world. And not only that, um, he's the prince of darkness. He's behind all the malevolent forces on the earth. And the tragedy is that men and women cannot see him and so they don't believe in him. But yet they're controlled by him. They're under his authority and under his power. And that's why Paul says to us, and we'll get to this, the Lord willing, when we get to Ephesians chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's why I believe in the devil, because Jesus tells me there's a devil, and I need to be able to stand and fight against him. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And so, not only is he a spirit of power, but it says that he works in the sons of disobedience. Satan is active and alive in this world. We, we, just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at um, uh, chapter 1, verse 19, and we talked about the power of God. And, and Paul used four words to talk about the power of God. One of them, it says that the power of God is at work in us. The word is energia. There's, it's energy. It's from we get the word energy. And so we, we look there at how God, um, there is this energy that God is working in us. Well, that is the same word that Paul uses to describe the influence of Satan in the sons of disobedience. He is at work. He is an energy. He is, he is actively involved in keeping people from seeing Christ. He is actively involved in waging war against the saints. So is this, there is this activity of Satan in the world. He's the father of lies. He has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving, we're told. And so the picture gets even worse. It's, it's not just that there's this powerful spirit that has authority. It's not just that there's this powerful spirit that has authority and is working in people. But it says he's working in those who are characterized as sons of disobedience. Sons and daughters of disobedience. 
So the, the whole orientation of our life in our deadness is, is that of disobedience. Going the opposite direction of what God wants us to do. And we, 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 we reject what God has to say about us. We say, I do not want this God to rule over me. It's like we have rebellion built right into our DNA. You see, do you begin to understand, loved ones, a couple of things here? Do you begin to understand the miracle of salvation now? Do you begin to understand what it is that God has done for you? If you have been called out of darkness into light, if you have been called out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God, there has been this mighty transaction that has taken place. That God has been gracious and merciful to you and to me in ways that are beyond explanation. But you also understand what you're up against when you're praying for a son or a daughter or a grandchild or a wife or a husband or a brother or a sister or a neighbor who's outside of Christ. Do you understand why prayer is important? Do you understand why it's just not your ability to talk them into the kingdom of God? That this is salvation is a work of God. It's a spiritual battle. And so we need to pray, God, would you release them from the grip of the world? God, would you release them from the power of Satan? God, would you breathe life into their spiritual deadness? I can't do that, God, but you can. And then he comes to the third one. And he says, we're, we're slaves to our passions. The reference there is to our flesh. And it's talking about the fact that, that just this whole body in which we inhabit is anti-God. Its orientation is away from God. The flesh is turned in on itself and we have no resources on which to live as we were intended to live for the glory of God. We are spiritual rebels. We are guilty of moral treason. We refuse God's goodness and we pursue lies. Paul talks about this and he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, spiritual death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. And then listen to this. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Why can't you please God? Because you're dead in your sins and your trespasses. And the flesh is this all-encompassing reality. It says there, he says there that, 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 it is, that, that we have been carrying out the desires of body and mind. That, that not only are we using our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness, our hands and our feet and our eyes, but we're using our mind. We're, we're thinking up all kinds of imaginative ways of disobeying God, of all kinds of imaginative ways of, 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 of evil and, and sin. Where in Genesis we, we read there that every inclination of man's thought in all ways was opposed to God. So this is what Paul is saying about the, the, our spiritual deadness, how it's revealed. That it's revealed in, in these particular ways. And, and there's more yet in the bad news. Because we are, we are dead men walking in, in the sense that the story does not end well in that state. It says not only are we sons of disobedience... Not only is the whole inclination of our life to disobey God, but notice this frightening phrase, we are by nature children of wrath. We are by nature children of wrath. See, we're not disobedient from God. It's not simply an, aber uh, an aberration. It is our nature 
It is within us to oppose God. It is within us to rebel against God. We are born with this rebellious nature against God. Warren Worsby talks about an evangelist friend of his who once preached on the topic, why your dog does what it does. And the gist of what he said was simply this. A dog behaves like a dog because he has a dog's nature. If somehow you could transplant into the dog the nature of a cat, I would give up my dog. (laughs) Sorry for those of you who love cats. But, but, it, but in other words, a dog does what a dog does because that's the dog's nature. A cat does what a cat does because it's a cat's nature. We do what we do as those um, outside of God because that's our nature. We are sinful by nature. It's just in us. It's who we are. And as a consequence, we are children of wrath. And our biggest problem is not with the world or with Satan or with the flesh. Our biggest problem is with God. This is not easy stuff, but this is truth. This is the Buckleys of Scripture. And you come to Romans chapter 8, 32, and we read, and we read with great relish, if God is for us, who can be against us? Wow, that is so great, and that is so true. God's on my side. But what if God isn't on your side? What if God is against you? And that's the case for all who are dead in their sins and trespasses. They are by nature, children, of wrath. And this wrath is, is not only a, a future reality, and it talks about in the scripture that at the last day when we all stand before the judgment of God and at the end of the, the last days as this world is coming to an end, that the wrath of God is going to be poured out against all ungodliness. And God will judge sin and disobedience. And, and the wrath of God, which is not like the wrath of man, but it's a holy wrath and it's a just wrath and it's a perfect wrath and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a predictable wrath, that wrath will be poured out. But God's wrath is also a present reality. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, in the present world in which we live, as those who are dead in our sins and our trespasses, the very wrath of God rests upon people already. And you say, well, how? How is that wrath evidenced? Well, it's evidenced, and and this is a horrific thought, but it's evidenced, and we see it all around us, in that God gives people over to their sins and their trespasses. That, that God removes his, 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 his mercy and his grace and his hand from people. And he says, if you will continue to obey me or disobey me and you continue to reject me, then I'll just back up. And we read that in, in Romans chapter 1. And I, I think these are, and there's more passages like this, but these are some of the most frightening verses in Scripture. Uh, verse 24 of, of Romans chapter 1. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and dishonoring their bodies. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. We see the wrath of God being, being poured out on mankind even today as God says, I'll give you up then to your own sinful inclinations and the, rea- the, the really troubling phrase of that is that it's by nature we can't help ourselves because we're dead in our sins and our trespasses 
One last statement, and this is like the last spoonful going down. Dead men walking, no one is excluded from the script. Loved ones, this is a universal epidemic. This is a universal reality that has engulfed all mankind that ever was, that ever is, and that ever will be. Spiritual death is part of the whole human race. You read this when, when, when he says there that, that you all once lived. You were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you all once lived. You go a little bit farther down and he says uh, that you were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There were no exceptions to this. That every single man and woman, boy and girl ever conceived was conceived in sin and is by nature a child of wrath. There's no exceptions to that. Spiritual death is this cloud that hangs over all of humanity. Spiritual death is the reason why there's all this rebellion and rejection and hostility towards God. You just need to read Romans chapter 3 and verses 9 to 18 and you see an illustration of our utter and complete inability to approach God because we're dead. As Jeremiah says, can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Or can the leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. This is the desperate condition that we are all in before we find Christ. This is the desperate condition that the world finds itself in. And this is why then we come once again to the amazing truth of Scripture that as we read in Jonah, salvation belongs to our God. This is this amazing reality that what I can't do for myself, Christ does for me. This is this amazing reality that I contribute nothing to my salvation. God contributes everything to my salvation. This is this amazing reality that, that what I can't do, God can do. And as we see here, the story is not yet finished. And we'll look at this next week and we'll get to the really good stuff. Um, well, this is all good stuff, but we'll get to the, the hope. Because in those two words in verse 4, we find this amazing hope. But God... We were dead in our sins and our trespasses, but God. We were following the course of this world, but God. We were enslaved to Satan and his power and authority, but God. We were captive to our flesh and our mind and our, and our bodies, but God. In other words, loved ones, if you need hope, if you need help, the only person and the only place that you can turn is to Jesus Christ. And that's why it is so critical that we understand the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by him. For without Christ, we are hooped. Without Christ, we are helpless. Without Christ, you will never come to the Father. But God has provided this amazing way whereby which we might have our sins forgiven, whereby which we might have the power of the world broken, whereby we, we might have the influence of Satan taken off our lives, whereby we now can be dead to our sins and our trespasses and alive to God because as Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And we can now be living in a way that pleases God and honors God and is a relationship with God. And so my encouragement to you this morning 
is if you're outside of Christ, understand the truth of your situation. Understand that in and of yourself, your situation is hopeless. But look up. Look to Jesus, and you will find salvation for your soul. Look to Jesus, and you will find life from death. And what do I say again to those of you who who cry day and night for your loved ones? You recognize the the seriousness of their situation. But just as God saved you, just as God gave you, there is no more, you can't be deader than dead. And so if God saved you, he can save your loved one. If God saved you, he can save your son. If God saved you, he can save your spouse. If God saved you, he can save your neighbor. Because the same God who raised you from the dead can raise them from the dead to life. And so that is my encouragement to you is to be men and women, to be men and women of prayer. And to be men and women who cast yourselves wholly on God for salvation. And to know then what Paul is going to say a little bit longer. But God gave us the gift of salvation. Oh, loved ones, as you go from here this morning, as you head out in your day, just spend some time thanking God and saying, God, I I maybe never realized how bad I was. I never realized the situation that I was in. And my eyes have just been opened a little bit more this morning. And I just want to thank you again for sending Jesus. I want to thank you again for calling me out of darkness into light.